live from wherever you happen to be, it's the SNL Hall of Fame Podcast. And now, here's your host, curator of the hall, Jamie Dew. Coming in for a landing, that's me, Jamie Dew, here again for another week of the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. Really want to thank Doug Denance for that stellar introduction, along with Casey Lyons for the arrangement, the music. Uh, it's wonderful, and it's a, it's a great feeling to walk into the Hall of Fame under these circumstances. So there's that. Hope this episode finds you well, rested, and in your general health. We've got a great show for you this week, so you're going to want to be healthy for this one. This week, I sit down and talk with uh, SNL superfan Matthew Ardell, and he brings to the table a really unique character. Michael O'Donohue, an original, not ready for primetime player, one of the first head writers of the show outside of Lorne Michaels. Mr. Mike is a controversial figure, uh, to say the least, but uh, he's got the bona fides from the Lampoon days and Lampoon Radio to really um, stir things up in the original run of SNL. In fact, Mr. Mike is the first image that we see when SNL begins. Is that enough to make it to the SNL Hall of Fame? I, I don't know. I don't know. I think that he is a strong candidate on the ballot. But when push comes to shove, you're only going to have 12 votes. And there will be, you know, close to 30 balloteers on the ballot. And you're going to only be able to choose 12 of those. If, after I do the tabulations, they achieve 51% or more, they uh, appear on 51% or more of the submitted ballots, then they will be an official SNL Hall of Fame or... <laughs> They'll get their plaque hung in the hallowed halls. By the way, have you wiped your feet? For goodness sakes, this isn't your grandmother's rec room. This is uh, the SNL Hall of Fame. Roll out the red carpet. And on that note, let's go to the interview with Matthew Ardill as he adds Michael O'Donohue to the ballot of the SNL Hall of Fame. I'm joined today by Toronto-based comedy aficionado, podcast host and producer, Matthew Ardill, to nominate a writer onto the SNL Hall of Fame ballot. A dangerous writer, you might say. Matthew, 
Talk to me about Michael O'Donohue. Why did you select him to nominate? Michael O'Donohue is like he is a force of nature, um, and was a force of nature in in that writing room. Um, like he was the first co head writer with Lauren Michaels in that first season. Then he took over in '76 uh, as the a sole head writer to '78. Um, then he came back at the t- the, the last episode of the '80s, uh, 1980. Uh, season, and then took over for the first little bit of Ebersol's run. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's clear like the people who worked with him saw his value. Um, Lauren consulted with him when leading up to the first episode in 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 sketches and hiring and and every step of the process during during those early days. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, so Ann Beats uh, in the uh, Saturday. Uh, there's an interview in Live from New York. Oh, right. Uh, the 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 book about Saturday Night, the oral history. Yeah. Uh, where she says, Michael O'Don, without Michael O'Donohue, we wouldn't have Saturday Night Live, and I think it's important people uh, remember that. Um. So he was. He he's controversial. I'm not going to pretend he isn't, <laughs> in that he was not a good guy all the time. Sure. Um, and and I think that defines sort of the more toxic elements, like of the SNL writing room and its culture. But also, he was the one who made it not every other sketch show. Interesting. Okay. What, like what? you have, um, like Saturday Night Live, and then you have Saturday Night. You know, <laughs> at that time, there were the two shows, and Saturday, the show we know as Saturday Night Live, was not was was Saturday Night, right? And like, funny enough, Bill Murray was on Saturday Night Live, which was the and then changed, but that Saturday Night Live was a tame, Sunny and Cher kind of show. You know, is like the is safe sketches. It was there was no controversy. Whereas I think what Michael O'Donohue did is he brought to that writing room the mentality of the era of like time to like that take down the van, break the systems. It's a very lampoon mentality. Um, I mean, like if you look at his material from there, um, there's stuff that like the Vietnamese baby book was one of his uh, his pieces, which they and that is that almost sums up his ethos in one piece of material it was like it was a baby book and this is in the midst of the vietnam war and it was just basically how this kid was going to die it's like yeah yeah but it's one of those things where it's like like he had a, a, a quote making people laugh is the lowest form of comedy and and that that, that Vietnam, the Vietnamese baby book that quote kind of sum it up and and the very first sketch kind of speaks to that the Wolverine sketch, right? Where like it's like I'm laughing at this, but it's a I'm laughing because I need to release the tension because I don't know what's going on in front of me. It's silly, but not <laughs> funny in the ways I'm expecting. And then it ends with. The two characters on stage dying, Chevy walking out, and doing the very first live from New York at Saturday night. 
Yeah. You know? so, so he injected this sense of danger, which <laughs> became yeah. a buzzword for him later sure on. Sure did. Uh, paint. That, yeah, yes. Um, that it, it, I think wasn't seen on television and and he inspired others to push boundaries and, and embrace weirdness That's like cool. a, yeah like it's a gonzo mentality he even looks like like um hunter s thompson, thompson right yeah like he has that gonzo vibe yeah uh yeah i think that's a really astute way of looking at him you know sort of gonzo and you know very of the time for sure i'm curious whether or not you think that danger, we'll call it again, is something that could have created an environment where it may have been difficult to uh, accomplish what they were looking to accomplish rather than, you know, um, lubricate the wheels of comedy. It could have you know, slowed them down a little bit. He's a, like where he gets problematic for me, but still has value is there's a meanness there. But I think that meanness was needed in that moment because we're like everything was, was couched in, in, in safety and kindness in a way that meant, I think a lot of the important messages he was trying to get across got lost. I mean, I'm not a big like edgelord comedian or anything like that. I'm not like, Oh, we need to, you know, like the Mr. Mike sketch where, where uh, the, the, uh, the soiled kimono sketch, the last line being uh, we, sometimes we need to be cruel. And and then Lorraine turns to Mr. Mike and says, well, why, Mr. Mike? Uh, you know, oh, or, or to be kind, Mr. Mike, and, she, and he's like, no, to be crueler. Uh, but that speaks to the fact that he's got important things to say. And you look a few years before SNL, you had uh, the Smothers Brothers, and they were incredibly political. Same period as he's doing the Lampoon, and the difference being is they sort of couched it in this folksy. Right, sweet as pie kind of exterior, and you had like Steve Martin, who yeah, arguably has to be in the Hall of Fame. Oh, um, oh gosh, yeah, yeah, Absol- you've got absolutely, you know, he's a slam dunk. <laughs> you've got like you've got um, all these com- comedic geniuses in there with these anti-war messages, anti-church messages, like just political agendas, and it got canceled and. If you talk to your my like my my mom or my dad, they would they they didn't click that it was like an anti-Vietnam or it was anti-church. They just thought it was a funny show where they had the yo-yo man on, you know. And and I think Michael O'Donoghue was like, just let's get to the core of the the absurdity of humanity. At least in those early years. And those early years are important because they they ultimately inform you know, what the show is going to become. That's not to say that the show is still putting out, you know, sketch work where they're relishing, you know, there's a schadenfreude or... Yeah, I mean, I think he was willing to put out the ugliness of people to make it... I don't think he relished in it. I I think it was just a case of, like, we need to find the humor and humanity, even Ah. the ugliest parts. Yeah. Uh, Like, it's kind of... uh, I kind of look at like a punk rock kind of mentality, like that early. 
Yeah, I mean the yeah. show is the show is rooted in that sort of yeah. ethos. And I mean, and you look at SNL and that, those early years, that that first couple of seasons, they were the, one of the first platforms for punk in America on on mainstream television. You know, so uh, like, it, it's funny because like at the time he was writing, Al Franken was also like a a junior writer there, and I kind of view their approaches to the same subject matter as just like polar opposite directions trying to make the same statement whereas they're both like people are dumb we're naive we're we're petty and we're self-centered and like with al franken he had Stuart smalley with his affirmations and his 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 you know, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, gosh darn it, people like me, kind of stuff, like his embracing <laughs> of pop psychology. Yeah. But, but then um, with with Mike O'Donoghue, he had Mr. Mike, which is the exact polar opposite. It's just this dark, self-centered person who, do- who knows it and just doesn't care. Mr. Mike, Mr. Mike, please tell me a least love bedtime story. Well, sure thing, you little imp. Just hop up here on my knee, and I'll tell you the story of the little train that died. Okay. Yes. Okay, now one time there was a little train. We had to pull a giant load of scrap metal up the mountain. He had never pulled such a heavy load in his life, and so when he left the valley, his little wheel said... I hope I can, I hope I can, I hope I can, I hope I can. But before long, he picked up speed, and now the wheel said, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Soon the little train was whizzing right up the mountain, and now the wheel said, I know I can, I know I can, I know I can, I know I can. Heart attack, heart attack, heart attack, heart attack. Oh my God, the pain. Oh my God, the pain. Oh my God, the pain. I left my bills in the roundhouse. I left my bills in the roundhouse. And he died. No, no, really, Jody, that would be the end of the story, but the little train was on the mountain, kind of on an incline, and he began to roll backward slowly at first, of course, but getting faster and faster, until he was just barreling down the mountain, those wheels uh, just barely on the tracks. Of course, they weren't saying anything this time because they were dead. Now, in the valley, who should be sit- sitting on the tracks but Freddy the Frog, and wouldn't you know it, he's facing the wrong way, so he never sees the train coming at him at 180 miles an hour. Fortunately, Freddy hops off the tracks just in time, and the train misses him, hitting instead a school bus, killing 150 Norman over age 9, and the school bus. Now, when the state police arrive at the scene, one of them looks around at the carnage and grisly mutilation, spots Freddy and says, you know it's wrong that so many human beings should, should be dead, and this frog should still be alive. And so they beat him to death with a softball bat at the end. Oh, Mr. Mike, Mr. Mike, that was the best tale I've ever heard. Well, you know, Jody, I have a lot more where that came from. Uh, good night. Have you heard the one about the penguin, the soap dish, and the invisible cowgirl? Well, uh, as you mentioned, he got pulled out of the not ready for primetime players. So I think this was kind of his way of injecting himself into as a compromise. Um, it's sort of like hinted at in some of the interviews that I've read, where it's like they gave him this to keep keep him satisfied. But it was it was sort of just like these slivers of nihilism that he would inject into things that were... S- <laughs> well, it's pretty punk rock. It is a pretty punk rock name. But uh, 
Yeah, like it, an example would be the Ray Charles episode. Um, he has, is Mr. Mike, uh, is the Monet sketch, I think is what it is called. And so what happened was like the entire episode was, was Ray Charles basically leading it. It's, 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 it, it harkens back to the Paul Simon episode where there's more music than there is comedy and they're still trying to find that balance. Um, but towards the very end, he comes out in character as Mr. Mike with a big painting frame and it's covered in a tarp and he's he starts saying talking about how you know the last week's been really wonderful and they've done a like they passed a hat around and nbc has matched the money and what they've done is they bought this monet painting and they're going to give it to this charitable organization for the blind and then he the pulls the tarp off and just in big writing, it says, no one tell him. And it's, there's no painting. And, and the entire cast is gathered around the piano. They've kind of been jamming, looking at their faces. I'm like 99% sure they didn't know this was what was going to happen. Because like, there's a look on, on, I think it was Bill Murray's face of like, oh shit. <laughs> it's like uh, what? What? No, no. Um, so it's it was just like there's this there's this utter fear, but in the the last moment, and Ray Charles turns to the audience after Mr. Mike is left and says, "What Mr. Mike doesn't know is after this there's going to be a party, and he, there's going to be twenty of the biggest black men he's ever met." standing there waiting for him. So Ray Charles is in on the joke. Mr. Mike was, you know, Mike O'Donohue was in it, but the cast, I don't think were. Wow. Really? Just based on the reactions. Cause it was like too like deer in a headlight, like not like a playing along, just an actual fear reaction <laughs> and embarrassment going on there. Wow. And and then when the tension is released by Ray Charles at the end, like they all there's like this this there's a genuine laughter from each of them. Oh that's so that's so I don't know. Um Mike, you know, Michael O'Donoghue. Um so he's the head writer, he's co head writer, then head writer and then he leaves the show, and then he comes back. The 1981 season, that's when he came back. For, I think he only did eight episodes before being replaced by, uh, it was like Bill Titch or something like that. I can't remember, but he was replaced. Bob, Bob, Bob Fisher. Bob, Bob Fisher. Yeah, oh, Bob, right. yes. Yeah, so he was replaced halfway through. because. So, I mean, it's clear that, you know, Ebersol is like, uh, I, he's important. We need right. him to level set after this terrible season. And I mean, it just like that, that prior to the 81 season though, and this is where I think the problem with Michael O'Donoghue comes into play is like, I think towards the end, like he is talk about how he thought it was a Viking death ship and they needed to burn it all to the ground. And it's again, that nihilism. Uh, He, he walked into the writer's room, had the entire cast there, Catherine O'Hara, freshly down from Toronto from SCTV. She was going to leave SCTV and join the cast of SNL. He starts screaming 
at everyone. Spray paints the word danger on the writing room wall, saying, this is what's missing. And she quit that day. She didn't didn't do a day, you know. And I think that's the the danger of his danger is <laughs> it 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 can go too far, you yeah. know. And 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 that like there and there are moments where it's just like it just doesn't click. Like I watched his um, Mr. Mike's Mondo video, which is what he left to record. He was supposed to have his NBC an NBC spinoff. Oh. Um, and he filmed and, it. What, and what was it called again? Um, Mr. Mike's Mondo Video. That's the name so that's of the show? Yeah. Okay, sorry. No, no. No, no, no worries. Oh. Yeah, and it was supposed to be a parody of Mondo Kane, which is like a travel show. And it was just so... It, it's funny because it still works in a way. It's, it's like a combination of Eric Andre's sort of like savvy when it comes to making a point with the bizarreness of Tim and Eric. So, so you have like these videos where it's like a guy teaching cats to swim. That's what it starts with. And then it's like Dan Aykroyd showing people his webbed toe. What? Or, you know, like literally every woman involved in the first season, the first few seasons of SNL doing a bit for him. So there's love there. I mean, it's clear that like people got him. And his intent was good. Ah, yes, yeah, that's a uh, that's that's great. So that's the danger of his danger. Let's talk about the positives of his danger. What uh, earlier I said about lubricating the wheels of comedy. What um, did his danger do in terms of? That would you say? I, I I think just for for what he brings to the table is the, the this this political the this concept that you need to be to be funny is fine and it's good, but having a point really elevates the comedy. And I mean, you see in the best episodes from that early era, like uh, the Richard Pryor episode in its entirety is brilliance, but the specific sketch that stands out in that is the um, HR interview with with him and Chevy. You have to be smarter about how you target. And at that time, you couldn't couldn't target your comedy quite as easily, but at the same time, it was a new world. Like, like the the things that SNL were doing in that, those first, you know, that first decade was figuring out what the comedy language for the next 30 or 40 years was going to be, or 50 years almost now. It was like, it was defining that. And I think he was a part of that where he was telling people it's okay to be angry and it's okay to show that and to let that come through in your comedy. Yeah. Yeah. uh, A distinct point of view is, uh, is an impressive tool. I think. Are there any other stories or anecdotes that you had that you wanted to share about Michael O'Donoghue? Well, I, so the thing I find interesting about him that really shows that I think he's actually, you know, not the horrible person he seems to be is there was a kid named Paula Davis who was like the assistant to Lorne 
and uh, Annie, and, and basically the writers. She was actually the, the child of a game show uh, like spokesmodel. Uh, filming elsewhere in NBC and she would sneak in she and her high school friend they would sneak in together and hang out backstage because there was a time when you could just do that and hang out and like become friends with like Bill Murray and Chevy Chase and all of these amazing people Uh, and there was a staffing job that came up and she went up to Michael O'Donoghue and was like can you put in a good word? And he, so he wrote her a letter. He brought her into his office. He sat down. He wrote it out, just like extolling, like saying. Because she, by that time, she'd been a gopher for people, not officially on the payroll, but essentially like a page without being a page. And he wrote this letter. And then at the very end, and it's just this typical glowing endorsement letter. And the very end, he said, "P.S. I'd rather stick my dick in a blender than write <laughs> one of these letters." So. Even when he's doing something really nice, right. he has to tack that kind of sarcasm on the end. But that actually just underlines how much nice he actually <laughs> the niceness is in there because he actually meant everything he said. Because he's like, if I'm doing this, you know it's serious. So hire this lady, and 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 she ended up working with him for years. Thank you so much, Matthew Ardell, for joining me this week to add Michael O'Donohue to the ballot. That was pretty terrific, right? I mean, did you know everything that Matthew shared with us before? I, I didn't. Uh, I learned a few things, including that last little tidbit. That's a, a, a nice center to the story, and we, and we need that because... Yeah, Michael O'Donohue has a has a track record of being, you know, sort of a shit disturber and a rabble rouser. And it's just nice to hear something from the heart at the end, even though it is punctuated with his own brand of of humor. So thanks a lot to Matthew for joining me this week. I greatly appreciate it. And if you liked what you heard from Mr. Ardell, then You'll be pleased to know that we'll be hearing from him again later on this season as he brings to the table another candidate. For now, though, that's uh, what I got for you. So we're going to wrap things up, and I'm going to tell you that next week we're going to be joined by Thomas Senna, who is going to nominate Chris Farley to the ballot. That's a good one. I mean, they're all good ones. This is what makes it so fucking hard. But uh, Farley, yeah, stick around for that one. But in the meantime, hit the lights. The SNL Hall of Fame is now closed. Thanks for listening to the SNL Hall of Fame podcast. You can find everything you need to know about the show at snlhof.com. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is Duncan Ant saying, this is Duncan Ant saying, see you next month in the hall. Some such.